Hello, hello from me and um, Lady Marmalade, who you can hear ferociously purring on my nap at the moment. Welcome back, fellow turd glitterer. I hope you're feeling really great today, uh, ready for another turd tale. You're going to be hearing from comedian Darren Harriet today, who I had the absolute pleasure of meeting last year when he performed at the Cobfield event that I organised called Festival. I didn't actually get to see his set back then. I, I was likely running around needlessly panicking about something. But I did get to see him hanging out after the gig, enjoying the festivities and seemingly loving life. Honestly, he has the best grin ever. Anyway, I was really glad I got to speak to Darren about his turd. I once again wasn't sure what he might bring up turd wise, but I'm very glad he shared what you're about to hear. I personally think it's fascinating how curious he is about how much his turd that happened uh, when he was 11 has shaped his life today and who he is. I think you will love listening to him share what he's learned as much as I did. Also, if you watched Dancing on Ice last weekend, you might have also enjoyed his skating and getting pied in the face. I definitely did. So without further ado, here's today's episode. And if you enjoyed it, you know what to do. By that I mean, leave a nice five-star review and tell everyone you know about it. Okay, here you go. I'll see you on the other side. So, Darren, hi. Hi, Bab. You are a comedian and a podcast host and currently a Dancing on Ice contestant. That I mean, are we allowed to say that? Yeah, Shit. Chris, if, yes? if, we were put, if we were putting those in order, I would say Dancing on Ice contestant, podcast host, and then sometimes comedian now. It feels like I'm a full-time uh, ice skater <gasps> over everything because it, it is – yeah, it is It is my entire day. I mean, it's very different to say Strictly, where you can kind of dance anywhere. You can practice in your house, but I have to, you know, I get I have to be driven to ice rinks and that, that's where the practice is. So it's a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot. There's so much to it. Um, I would say about five hours of my day is dedicated to something around dancing on ice, whether it's traveling, stretching, getting ready, off ice lifts, on ice work. It's, uh, I've had relationships with, where I've given less of a commitment <laughs> than this. And before we um, press record, I asked you whether they give you much of a heads up about injuries, and apparently they don't. But do they give you much of a heads up about this kind of time commitment and what it will be like and how life-consuming it will be? Yeah, yeah. They tell you, they tell you sort of that it is, you know, it is hard. I think they just, I remember them just saying, it is hard. It is hard and there is a lot of time spent on the ice and you'll need to be training at least five six times a week yeah but they never tell you um just the whole thing whether it's you know messages about changing dates this ice rink's closed you're training here you're meeting this person there's a costume fit and there's it's so many I, I mean I feel like I've got they they've created whatsapp groups for each celeb and in my whatsapp group there's eight people it's like, what, what are we doing? Am I Madonna? Like, there's like eight <laughs> yes, people who were just in control of my whole experience on the show. I mean, there's so much to it. There's so much to it. And I always, I think it, when I watch Strictly and how much the contestants gush over 
the people behind the scenes. I actually know the person who sets off all of the fireworks and the glitter cannons and stuff. And she has, I mean, that's a crazy busy life that she leads just doing, and it's it's not just, but just all that extra stuff that you don't really think about. Yeah. But um, it is amazing how many people are involved in these things. But what an insight you're getting though. And yeah, just stay safe, please. Just don't hurt yourself. I'm I'm trying my best. Yeah, I really. I, it is it is of course the number one worry. I think that I think the, the when I fell and I had the whiplash, that's been pretty bad because that was about two weeks ago and it's still not a hundred percent there. But um, I always hate it when people have like they have sayings that make sense but aren't helpful. It's when they say things like, "Oh, if you're not falling, you're not trying." It's like, ah. Just, it's just not helpful to me right now. That, <laughs> Have um, Torval and Dean been in to see you and said any sage advice yet? Well, that was ta- that was actually uh, Christine who said that. Who uh-huh. said if you if you're not falling, you're not trying. It was very strange because the first time we'd met them, we all met them as a group on our skates for the first time. So obviously, it was just you know just a bunch of celebrities falling around on the floor. That was the whole thing. And then you'd meet them and they were, you know, they were so nice, so cool and and whatnot. And uh, uh, you, you just feel so embarrassed. It's like, you know, you're meeting, you know, arguably two of the greatest, well, one of the greatest routines ever from two of the greatest ice skaters ever. And you're, and this is your first time on ice. And they're just watching you, asking you, can you go under this? Can you do this? And you go, no, I can't. I can't even move. I can't. What, what do you want from me? It was, it was so high pressure. I felt, I, I, it was, I felt really exposed because I couldn't ice skate, but then I'm just in front of these two, you know, absolute legends. Yeah, but they don't expect you to be some pro yet. You, that's, that's, that comes later. That, well, let's hope so. Shall we get into it finally? And actually, could you introduce your turd? Okay, so uh, I've had I've had many a turds. I'd probably go with the big turd of my life was probably my dad dying. Um, so my dad was a drug addict and a drug dealer who killed himself in prison when I was eleven. Um, he his death has been. Uh, I often have. It's it's a question I will. I will always ask myself, I go, Darren, do you think you would have got into the career that you're in? Entertainment, comedy. Do you think you would have been a comedian if your dad was still alive? Because there's clearly, you know, this 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 need, this desire for love from audiences, from people. Do you really think you would have been doing what you do now if your dad was alive? And it's always, it's it's a question I've asked myself. I've asked myself it so many times. And it really does interest me. Where are you at with that? Are you anywhere near a conclusion or not? When I was in school, um, I always struggled with any, anything written. I was always a performer. And again, even with that, that only really kicked in in my teens. And my dad was already gone by then. But I always knew I liked acting. And it was the only thing I was ever good at at school. I remember my drama teacher said to me, he said, Darren, I should be giving you an A+. Plus. But you didn't really do any coursework, so you've got to get it. I'm just going to give you. I'll give you a B because you barely did any coursework. But I think I think I still would have been doing some form of acting, maybe, if my dad was there. Um, but I don't know whether I would have been an 18 year old kid 
uh, going to, you know, doing random car shares with middle-aged new open mic comedians driving from, you know, the black country to, I don't know, Brighton or somewhere in a night to do a 10-minute spot to a promoter who might pay us, might not, and then drive back the same day when I was, you know, between the ages of like 18 and 23. I don't know whether I would have had that desire to do that and be a comedian if my dad was still alive. I think he, he, I think his death is, it's, it's the biggest thing. Obviously, it was the biggest thing in my life in terms of losing somebody. I've, I've, not, I've not lost anybody as significant and as important as him yet in my life. But I think the path that I went down after he died it had some horrible sides to it you know I, I joined a gang and carried a knife and all that sort of stuff in my teens and then I got out of that and then I, I I've got really really depressed around the age of about 17 I finished school didn't enjoy school then I started college and I thought I was going to enjoy college but I realized that college is just school so I didn't really like college and then I found like a flyer for a, for a uh, one of those um, nights where, you know, it's a variety night. You know, there's singers, there's musicians, there's poets. And I remember it said comedy. And I went, mm, I forget if I got that. And it, I had a go, at, I saw it, and I, I ended up having a go at comedy. And it worked out, and I really enjoyed it. But I remember before I did my first ever gig, age 18 and I, I think it was December I want to say December 14th 2006 at a place called the Saffron Banqueting Suite in Birmingham I remember sitting on the side of the road looking at a picture of my dad and I think I'm pretty sure I must have I probably had tears in my eyes and then I just got up and I went in and just did my first ever comedy gig what were you thinking when you were looking at that picture though? Why that why was that significant in that moment to think about him? So what happened was my dad passed away um in March 2000. Mm. I was still in like primary school, I guess. I was 11. Then September I started secondary school, big school, you know, high school, whatever. And then I was, you know, going through puberty, think, meeting new friends, you know, uh, fancying women, you know, f- figuring out who I am, what I want to be. So I was really, really occupied. Like I was sad about my dad and upset. But I tell you, starting high school really does occupy you. Like it really does take you. you, you I'm not sitting just thinking about my life because I'm, busy you know I guess and then once I left that and started college and things started to slow down because it's not school necessarily it all started to hit me again and it really started to come back to me and then I I just got more and more depressed and got more and it was almost like I had all these feelings about my dad that I'd never wasn't able to truly express because I don't I never really came from I don't really have the sort of family I do more now but I never really had the sort of family back then that I felt like I could just sit down and go, you know, I'm depressed. And I, I, I it's something I only realised quite recently. My mum was the same age as me when my dad died. She was like, I'm 34, my mum's 33. My mum was 33 with two kids, one 13, one 11. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she was, wow. It's like me a year, a mere year ago was my mum. So I can't, ex- I couldn't expect my mum to be as you know emotionally 
developed as maybe I needed back then because she just had to keep a roof over our heads. She was obviously struggling with it. Um, and then, you know, me and my brother, we were just at school. My brother, my brother just went headfirst into football and just became like an amazing football player. And I just was, I was just sort of a bit of a lost kid sort of joining the gang. And when all that stopped and I, and I, and I was alone with no job thinking about, you know, probably getting into comedy. All I could think about was my dad. He was just the number one thing in my head was my dad. I miss him. I wish we had done this, you know, um, obviously when I say obviously, but it's, it's kind of like a statistic, I guess when like your parents commit suicide, you know, your chance of committing suicide is so much more higher because of it. So I always had suicidal thoughts for, for many, 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 many years, you know, especially as a youngster, my dad was always, was always there. It was always in the back of my head. And I think I just pushed him to the back during school and then it all came when I was about 18, just all these thoughts of my dad. And I just got really depressed. And I, I just, I, I don't know. I felt like it was what, whether he was watching me or looking down on me and or almost guiding me down this path. And I just remember sitting there. Because my, 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 my family didn't know that I was going to do this gig. They had no idea. My friends knew. My family didn't know. And it was just, it was almost like, it was just like my dad knows. And I was just, I remember there with my old phone and I was just looking at the picture. And I always remember the picture of my dad. The picture of my dad is the one that's on his um, headstone. It's just, it's my favorite picture of my dad because it's him with his he had dreadlocks and his glasses and he's smiling. And it's just the happiest. It's, it's whenever I think of my dad, that's the photo I think of. And I went out there and I, I, I did the, I did the show and it went fine. I mean, um, it went fine enough where I was like, oh, I could keep doing this. But I also, again, another, you know, what if it went the other way? Uh, what if it was a really bad gig? Would I have still done it? And I, I that one I can, I can definitely say, yeah, even if it went bad, because then I would have been more determined. It's not even like I knew then that it was what I wanted to be. I just knew that it, I was enjoying it enough and it was in and I it was keeping me so occupied because comedy I would imagine is a bit like um, I don't really like putting comedy and music together because I find them quite different but I would say that it's like music as in if you really want to be a singer songwriter or a lead singer you do everything you can right you write songs you listen to music you're trying to work with bands, you're traveling, you're getting your name out. It's that same thing when you're starting out. Same with comedy. When you're trying to be a comedian, you're writing jokes, you're traveling up and down, you're trying to get your name out to let everybody know. It's just all encompassing. There's this, there's this phrase a comedian says called, he's, he, he likes to say that he's trapped in the world of comedy. And I believe that. I believe you do really become trapped in this world of comedy. And I was I was completely trapped in it from the age of 18 to I would say about I would say ten years a good ten years I was completely trapped in comedy yeah easily ten ten to twelve years for sure wow but then if you think about it like your dad dying by suicide when you were eleven that is a time I'm trying to think of myself as an eleven year old and I moved to England actually I moved from Germany to England and my parents divorced and that was a lot there was a lot happening but you're right you throw yourself into school 
you throw yourself into thinking you should be just a child, even though there are these big feelings happening, but you don't know how to process them because no one's really helping you with that anyway. And then you do hit some kind of mental maturity, whatever scale that's on, and you go, oh shit, that thing that happened. Now I'm I'm processing that now. So I guess it's actually maybe not a surprise that you hit 18 and went, right, so my dad died. How do I feel about that? And for, But for you to kind of use that as real leverage and drive to just say, fuck it, I'm going to give comedy a go. And for your brother also to drive himself into being a footballer, that they're two massive things and very brave things to do. And I wonder probably that it was a huge motivator to kind of go, well, our dad's died, so nothing worse can happen than that. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to, I needed something. Comedy really did save me. But I'd also say that what helped me is, because I was 18 when I first started. So 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Those are ages. I was traveling, doing sort of gigs, trying to get good open mic gigs with comedians who were older, old enough to be my dad. Some, you know, sometimes we'd do a car share to save money, you know, petrol, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. With comedians who were, you know, someone in their 40s, somewhere in their 50s, someone like 30 with a car. And it was odd because I would sit in there and you'd hear them talk about, you know, their families, their kids, all this sort of stuff. And it kind of hit me how I was like, wow, you're a 45-year-old white guy who loves sort of uh jazz music and you've you've got you've got diabetes and you've just told me that in your high school everybody was racist so you were racist and you're not racist anymore and you're ashamed of it but you've opened up to me and we're having this conversation and I'm a you know 19 year old kid who lives with his mom and you know uh doesn't really know what he wants in life but he's enjoying comedy and has zero money but you're giving me a lift to Derby for free and you're not charging me because you know that I don't have any money but we don't really have much in common but the one thing we have in common is comedy and we're messaging each other all the time talking about comedy and so talking about oh have you seen this clip did you see this new special have you watched this gig and that kind of relationship I, I've, I, I've had with 15 to 20 guys and girls that I can think of who are still around now we're all just trying to do the same thing. This one thing, it made comedy seem so fucking special to me that these, because these, these guys had so much more to lose if it all went wrong. As in, they've got kids, they've got mortgages, they've got full-time jobs. I, I, had a, I was working part-time at a JD Sports, living with my mom. My mom paid the rent. I didn't really have anything to lose. But these guys had so much more to lose, so much more going on. And you'd speak to some other comedians who would have divorces. Um, a really good friend of mine who's still a comedian now, he had a divorce with his wife because his wife was not happy that he was doing comedy because they had been married for a few years. He decided that he wanted to get into comedy. He was in his 30s. And I, and I, and I can see both sides. I see his side, of course. He wants to be a comedian. He's found this, this, this thing that he wants to be, almost like a vocation, I guess, that he wants to do. Uh, but I can see her point as well, where it goes... I didn't marry a guy who goes to work all day, leaves at five o'clock, drives to Newcastle to do 10 minutes for no money, comes back in at 1am, goes back to work, and then the next day 
drives to bloody Manchester, comes back in for no money. What what is going on? So I can kind of see both sides, and then and then he ends up having a divorce with her for for comedy because he wants to be a comedian, and he yeah. felt he felt the pull of it, and I I just knew that it was. I knew through those few years, because before I was flirting with it, doing comedy, but not doing it all the time. And I knew that um, through through a lot of the, and a lot of their generosity as well. They were so nice and so, so good to me as this young sort of stranger to them, especially to begin with. I've, I can only ever think of like two moments ever where I met a a pro comedian who was a full-time comedian, which back then was like the dream, who wasn't very nice. Everybody else was so accommodating, so warm and so generous and so nice to me. And I'd not really had that that much because, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20, the idea of meeting somebody who's 25 is weird to you because you're like, whoa, who's this grandpa? I remember doing, when I did a, a college B-Tech course, I was I was 17 when I started it. There was a guy in my college B-Tech course who was 23. Really nice guy. I remember thinking to myself, oh, what's happened to him? Why is he in here with us? He's 23-year-old. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then next thing you know, I'm in a car with 40-odd-year-old guys doing the same thing as me. And it really hit me just how strong and powerful comedy is. And I I, I really, I would say I, I, I was really into comedy. I had almost a uh, you could say a lust for doing comedy at the beginning, but then over the years, especially the early years, you sort of just really fell in love with it. And I just knew, and I have, I have a saying that really, that sticks with me. I could quit doing comedy tomorrow. Like if I never did stand up again, it would, it would hurt me because I'm, I'm so used to doing it, but I could never quit comics. Like comedians, who they are, their mind frame, what they what they've been through, their stories, their honesty, some of it good, some of it bad. I could never say goodbye to that. I could never quit that because it helped me. It it formed a lot of my personality that back then. Because I when I was eighteen, I didn't really have a personality. I was I was a lost uh, sort of angry kid. Well, it seems like you found your people in doing comedy. And I mean, it sounds like you learned that everyone's going through something. And obviously, I think it's very generous of you to think that other people are going through something worse, even though you had lost your dad under these pretty horrible circumstances. And, and like, you know, you could, but you could be compassionate and go, oh, people are, you know, putting comedy on the line and they value it so much. And you were exposed to all of these life experiences. And I just love listening to you talk about it and just being so passionate about it because then you can put all that passion onto the stage and it's that must be just so cathartic as well to be able to do that yeah i i remember so my my desire and my 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 want to talk about my dad's death on stage was so strong because I wanted to, I was like, okay, if I talk about it on stage, if I mention my dad's death, my dad committed suicide, he hung himself in prison. That was what I used to say on stage. And I would talk about it. If I said that enough times on stage, would it, it, would it sort of desensitize it for me in saying it? And I'll tell you one thing, it definitely did. Because I would say it, but it would just become, even though obviously it's my life and it's horrible, it would just become a bit of my comedy set. 
which I would say. And then what happens with that is you just get so used to saying it, it almost just loses its feeling. You don't really have that same feeling anymore when you go, you know, because, but, the, and I realized this because I would go on, you know, I would have dates and they go, oh, tell me about your dad. I go, oh, my daddy, um, he, he, um, he was a drug dealer. He, he hung himself in prison with a pair of shoelaces. And then you'd see her face and I'd go, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it was horrible. But to me, because I was saying that on stage, I immediately would forget the impact that is on, like, a stranger, which is quite a lot. Because when I say it on stage, I'm not necessarily seeing the audience. I can feel the audience reaction, but then I'm going into another bit, which has a, a bit of a, you know, a lighter laughter at the end. So we were going to get there. Uh, whereas, I, whereas when I'm on a date, I'm just being honest, saying it, and then not realizing, oh yeah, actually, it is bad. And I, I always remember the first time I met a comedian very early into my comedy career, whose dad had also killed themselves. Uh, their, their, their dad had hung themselves. And I was like, oh, no way. And we, we were, was like, yeah, my dad hung him, my dad hung himself in prison. Oh yeah, my dad, yeah, my, my dad killed himself too. And I was like, how? And we had this weird, and even it was, it was, I'm not going to say it was fun because it wasn't fun necessarily, but we had both never met another comic whose dad had also hung himself. So we were just like, oh, my dad did too when I was 11. And his dad was when he was, I think it was eight. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, how do you deal with it? And, it was, and we had similar experiences. We were both like, yeah, well, we was just so young that we just didn't really, it was really sad, but next thing I knew, because of the ages that we were, our memories really only developed into our teens. He said the same, well, I said this and he agreed with me. I said, I said, you know what really hurts the most? I don't remember my dad's voice. And I, I would hear, I would see him, I would hear him. We don't, never had the recordings back then. And he was like, same thing. He said, yeah, because we were so young when our dads were in our lives, his voice and those memories, we don't have as many because we were so young. If he died, so I, I, I was jealous of my, my dad. I've got an older half-brother who was, he was 16 when my dad died. And there's a part of me that's like, oh, those extra five years. But it was nice for me to see other comedians who had had, you know, their, their mom had committed suicide, but they were married or they were, you know, happy with kids and or they were in um I'll tell you what, they opened up therapy to me. Um a lot of community Felicity Ward, I've gotta give her a shout out. She opened up therapy to me. She was um I think we spoke we did a mock of the week taping and I, in the green room Felicity Ward was talking about therapy because she's very much she's another person with like lots of issues with her dad and all that sort of stuff. And she really opened up therapy to me and said, Yeah, you should probably do a bit of therapy. And then I spoke to other comedians and they also were like, oh, you're not in therapy? Oh, I thought, oh, I thought you was in therapy. <laughs> and then like, they were all laughing like, Darren, I swear to God, we all thought you was in therapy because everybody is. We all, yeah, of course, we all do therapy. And uh, and then I started doing therapy and I said, to the, I said to my therapist, I said, oh, I wish I had this when my dad died. If I had just somebody to talk to about this. And I, I definitely, you know, would have been, you know, I would have been a bit of a you know, stubby kid who didn't want to talk to anyone, even though I obviously did. 
it could have, I, I just feel like it could have changed so much for me. And then I started thinking, actually, I wish my mom had therapy. I needed it, sure. But I was, you know, I was 11. If, if, if my mom could have had therapy around when my dad died, I actually think that would have been even better for me. 100%. She would, I mean, you both would have massively benefited, I'm sure. Um, but I think you, what you had on your side is this like young innocence still of like, and it's not an awful lot, even, even parents divorcing, parents dying. I don't think there's, it's huge. And um, later in life, you can look back and go, wow, that was probably a massive turning point for me. But I didn't realize that at the time. Whereas your mom was probably feeling, all the feelings at that time didn't know how to process them. Whereas you could go to school. And um, I listened to a thing that you did for Radio 4 where you talk about the gang that you started and how you had merch. And, you know, you had, like, things on your mind. And not necessarily always healthy things, but, like, good things that distracted you. Whereas your mum had huge life responsibilities, had kids to feed and all the rest of it it's like a whole different ball game isn't it it's a different issue entirely what she was going through i and i've only ever really thought about it since therapy like what my mom must have gone through because my mom's a very she's a very she's a very private person she's not you know she's not gonna tell me like she's not gonna tell me like for example because i live in london and i do all the t- do tv and all that sort of stuff she'll never tell me anything that's going on in the family that's like bad if there's anything, because she's like, no, 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 Darren's busy. He's doing his comedy. Let's not distract him. I'm like, 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 like if my cousin went missing or something, she wouldn't tell me. You're busy. You're busy doing your thing. I don't. We don't want to distract you. We don't want to distract you. She's always that kind of person. So I know that from you know March 2000 for many years. It, my mum would have just been in bits in private. I mean, I remember, obviously I saw her crying at my dad's funeral, but I'll, I, I, I always I always remember seeing my mum crying in the kitchen. I think it might have been the same day we got the we got the call. It's, it's weird when, you know, you, you always remember where you were. You know what I mean? Like, I remember being upstairs playing on my Game Boy, playing Mario. My brother was in my was in my nan's room. I was playing game on the couch. My brother was in the mirror, looking at himself in the mirror. Right? My brother used to be like super hot, like just young, good looking. All the girls liked him, just messing. My brother had blonde hair, dyed his hair blonde. So that's how uh, that's how crazy confident my brother was. And then I remember the phone rang, and my nan answered the phone, and they just told my nan what had happened, and my nan just yelled. Patrick's dead. My dad's name. I'm like, what? Patrick's dead. So, but your dad's dead. And then, and that that is weird. At, at that moment, like I rem, I it, it all just it's all very hazy. But the only, but the next thing I remember was sitting back down in the chair, looking to my right. And my brother is still getting ready, but he's crying. He's, he's, he's getting dressed and doing his thing to go out to meet his mates. And he's just crying. And he's just gone out the door. And then after that, it, it's, it's, it's so strange because from that moment, I, I only remember that. 
my mum crying in the kitchen, going to see my dad's body, which was just uh, just wild to, for a, a kid to go and just sort of, yeah. I don't know if I would ever do that for if I have a kid to bring them to see my dad's body there. And then the funeral. And then after the funeral, I remember seeing when the, 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 the headstone was up. That's probably one of the strongest memories I have because, you know, I'd never, my mum had been to a fair share of funerals, I guess, and I, I wasn't aware of how these things happened when I was like 12. And we went, just me and my mum, my brother wasn't there for some reason. We went to my dad's grave. Obviously, you know, when someone dies, you visit their grave a lot, especially at the beginning. It's all the time. It's like weekly flowers. I remember we'd put Christmas stuff up for Christmas and all that sort of stuff. And it was obviously a big mound of dirt, you know? And then obviously it gets flatter and flatter and flatter and flatter. And as we kept going, and then I remember my mom said, we should go and visit your dad because the, the headstone's up. I was like, oh, okay. And then we went there and we saw the headstone and my mum just burst into tears. She just burst into tears. And then I just started crying and we both just looked at it and was like, shit, this is it. Mm, That's it it now. It's real. It's real. Mm. This is everything, everything. You know, all whatever little memories I have with my dad, uh, you know, taking us here, playing games, the photos, christening, you know, my dad's sort of mental decline with the family and all the different cars and all this sort of stuff. Him and my mom, him dying, tears, my nan phoning. Him, my dad phoned me before he died because um, that's when I found out he was in, in, in prison, going to see his body, the funeral, then visiting these, these, the, the sort of gravesite, then there's a headstone. And that, that was it. It was like, oh, you know, if we're talking about a film, that's the end of the film. It really just hit us that this is Patrick, Patrick Cohen's life. That, that's, this is what happens. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of those memories that you just, you just never forget, do you? It sort of sticks with you. And, you, and every time I visit, it's the same thing. I could talk to you all day. This has been such a joy. Um, I guess to sum things up a bit, because obviously usually I get people to really spell out what feels like the glitter to them from their turd. Um, I'm going to guess comedy has been the glitter for you, right? And, you know, how much what happened with your dad has funneled your desire to get on that stage and give it a go. And all that has been the ultimate glitter for you. Am I right? You're a hundred percent right. It, it's uh, saved my life, and um, it's definitely my dad has a hundred percent funneled me into it. I can't even. Mm. It's not like I can even think of anything else that I would have any interest in doing other than just performing in some way. And a lot of that was sort of spearheaded after he he passed away. And yeah, it really did. Those those. Uh, early teen, those late teens, early twenty years for me were was was would be so much harder if I didn't have this thing that I I, I was I just wanted to to be. You know, it was um, yeah, and it was just so fun, such a fun time. 
well, I feel like there's much more fun to come in ice skates too. Oh, so. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> much more fun to come in ice skates. Oh, I'm saying that with gritted teeth. They can't see, but I am saying that with gritted teeth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to watch. So also to sum things up, can you just maybe share a lesson that you've learned from your turd or glittering of it? A lesson that I've learned is you talk to people. Um, all people, different people. Like I said, I got to speak to people of all different ages, all different races, usually twice my age. I would never have, I would never have been in a car with these people for three hours hearing about their lives. And it really helped put things into perspective for me and that things were going to be okay. Because I think when I was younger, well, I thought that when you get to 40, 45, everything's going to be sorted. It's all going to be perfect. Everything's going to be great. Because that was one thing I couldn't get my head around while my dad killed himself was, oh, he's got, he's got loads of, he's got kids. He's got money. He's living a great life. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he do such a thing? Everything's like supposed to be perfect. And it's not supposed to be perfect. Things can be tough. So talking to all these different people, I mean, I was an 18 year old kid who wanted to be a member of So Solid Crew. Like that was like, I wanted to be like a grime rapper. And I'm now hanging out with, uh, you know, uh, a comedian who is in like a, um, an Ozzy Osbourne uh, tribute band and we're the best of friends hanging <laughs> out. It just talking to people just really helped me and hearing their stories. And um, yeah, it's, it's the biggest thing. It's why I'm so open-minded with people. I'm never, I never shut people down if they have things that I don't agree with I'm always just so open to hearing a conversation obviously if they're rude or something like that fine but I'm always always open to um a conversation at least because I know how much it really meant to me when I when I needed it the most that's a that's a great lesson to learn and something I will definitely try and remember more as well um and then what would you say the one thing was that has helped you to glitter your turd. Um, it can be an object, um, a, show, a TV show, a piece of food or something less tangible. Does help me glitter my turd. Could I say, could I say audiences? Yeah. It is, it is most people's worst nightmare, of course, is going on stage and just doing any form of speech. But the amount of confidence it's, it gave me. I, I always think of just being a young comedian going on stage. So my, so I always struggled quite early on because I was, I, I was always quite young, but I never really played up to being young as much as I should have done because everybody around me at that time, all my friends were like old men, I guess. So my comedy had an edge about an old man type edge, even though I was like a 19 year old kid with a side party. And <laughs> like I was, you know, talking about the, the mortgages and stuff. I didn't know. Um, I, I, the audiences really helped me because they, they as well as the comedians, I'd say the audiences also helped me um, uh, shape who I am because they could see things in me that I couldn't see straight away. And because and 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 that's a weird thing to say, but you know it through material, through certain things that I would say, it wouldn't like it wouldn't work because the audience knew that that's that's not like you. Like that, that doesn't suit you. But if another comedian said it, it would work. And it would, little things like that would help mold me. And I don't go, oh, that's how I'm seen. Or that's how I'm coming across. And it was such a, and it, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that takes, took years 
to truly understand how you look and how you come across to a room full of complete strangers. And it really does help. Obviously it helped mold my comedy and the things that I say and whatnot. Um, and yeah, I, I, I would, I would honestly, I would, I would say audiences. I tell you, they've not always been great. <laughs> they've not always been a, a rays of sunshine. But even when they're not, there's still been lots of lessons that I've learned, especially in interaction as well. Just, in, I mean, because sometimes you can go on stage and you can begin with talking to an audience member, and you could just say the worst thing by mistake, and then the next twenty minutes is just complete hell. And you really do learn how to sort of weave in and out of that and get better at it. And I yeah, think that's how, that is how you get better though, is like yeah. having those, those moments where every like your first joke is bombed and you're like, right, so I won't do that again then. And also, yeah, understanding what does make your audience laugh. And, but I, it's great that you do have that perspective and you kind of go, no, I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to grow from this because my experience of comedians is such fragility <laughs> like they are they come away and they don't know how to take criticism or like that that's been I mean I don't know huge amounts of comedians but that has been my kind of small experiences is that fragility of like of not being what liked of not being found funny and how to then turn that into well it doesn't matter I'll dust myself off and get back on that stage again exactly it's the main the main thing Chris with comedy and I tell people this all the time is when you're never happy, you're never happy. You're happy. You can be happy as a person, but in terms of what you do, you're never happy because there's no, there's no perfect joke or perfect bit of material that you can do forever. For example, you can name a million artists and you can say, oh, this song of theirs is great. Guess what? They can do that forever and everybody you turn up to the gig everybody wants to hear the hits it's as simple as that you know Adele's gonna do someone like you for the rest of time that's fine but if I have a comedy version of that I can only do it for maybe a tour uh, a DVD but I can't that's it it's done I have to keep on going forward so when you're a comedian you can have a great gig but then if you said to me and go Darren Give me some, I know you've just, you know, you've got a standing ovation from 3,000 people. Tell me something about that gig you didn't like. And I'd go, oh, you see that joke I did about da-da-da-da? That actually didn't work as well as it normally does. I also stumbled a little bit over that bit there. What I should have done is I actually said some of this punchline before the setup. But if I had only, we are never happy. Um, Yeah, comedians, we're, we're just constantly, constantly punishing ourselves. Yeah, constantly punishing ourselves, saying yes to ice skating saying yes to <laughs> shit we really don't want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. But I do think you have a really great attitude to just getting up there and giving it a go. And I, and I, a bit like how you started this conversation, like I don't know if it was because my dad died that I am where I am today. But I'd, I'd say your attitude has definitely been shaped by that early yeah. experience. This is a part of the podcast where um, we listen to one of my listeners um, tell us their story of turd glitching. This person wanted to stay anonymous. Fair. So let's have a listen. So I found my husband in bed with another woman, which was obviously really, really sad. Didn't know how to deal with it, but really upset and stressed. Was clearing out my stuff and found a toy 
that wasn't mine. So oh, that's interesting. So I found a nice chilli, cut it open and rubbed it all over and left. <laughs> Do you know what? My, my, my producer, Neil, right, he never tells me what these stories are going to be, but he's like, I've got a good one and I want to save it for when we're, just, we're, we're having a chat with a comedian because I think it's going to land a bit better during that conversation. I mean, okay, husband's <laughs> having an affair. Yeah. Finds a sex toy. Uh-huh. Also, hold on. If there's a sex toy and you find it, it's not yours, are you really going to want to, like, handle it in any way, shape or form? I mean, she's really angry that she was like, you know what? I'm going to handle it. I'm probably going to put it on the kitchen counter. I'm going to get some chilies and I'm going to rub it all over it. And I bet you she was very meticulously rubbing that chilli. Yeah, she doesn't mention that she puts um, some marigolds on first. She doesn't set up the scene entirely. But the fact is, who's going to suffer most from chilies on sex toy? Her husband or the poor person who's... Yeah, it depends on. I mean, I mean, Chris, there's there's so many questions. It all it all kind of depends on the sex toy, really. And it, did she did she sanitize her hands afterwards? These are all the important <laughs> questions that I've got for her. Oh wow! I mean, no wonder she wanted to stay anonymous because <laughs> yeah. there is a part of it that at the beginning I was like I felt really sorry for her, but now I actually feel sorry for the woman who who's who's uh, cheating on who's having sex with her husband. Because I'm like, well, what's her deal in all of this at the end? Uh, yeah, I, f- I feel like there's a lot more to this story that we don't know. But does this person really feel like they glittered the turd, or are they satisfied with that? I don't think she. I don't think she's satisfied with. Uh, no, she's. Uh, has she glittered the turd? I mean, she's lightly shaded it, but I wouldn't say glittered. That that that. Oh, I'll say this, Chris. It doesn't sound like a win. No, who, yeah, who wins in this? No one at this point. I would say nobody wins in this. I would say a lose-lose. <laughs> oh, yeah. How Not to Glitter a Turd would be probably the title of that story. Although, who knows? We don't know more, so maybe we shouldn't speculate too much. But I do appreciate that this person sh- decided to share that. Okay, so there's only one thing left to do now. And it's to cheers to all the turds, your turd, my turd. Um, do you still have water? What, what are you drinking? I do. I have water. Yes. Cheers oh. to the turds. Cheers to your turd. Cheers to your dad. Cheers to comedy. Cheers to my turd and all the world's turd. Cheers. Thank you. Well, isn't Darren a fun guy to listen to? I don't know whether it's all the hours on stage or actual real life therapy. Um, I think he's gained so much insight into the impact of his turd. It definitely made me think or I don't know, maybe reminded me how little I probably processed around the years when big stuff happened, i.e. my parents divorcing when I was 10. I don't know about you, but I find it pretty reassuring to hear stories like Darren's to know that an early years turd can make you throw yourself into stuff when you're older because you have this like deep understanding that worse things have already happened it's perhaps given you a strong sense of yolo that you may not have gained without said turd 
who knows, perhaps Darren might not be on Dancing on Ice right now, getting pied in the face if it hadn't been for what happened to him and his dad when he was young. Anyway, um, Darren has actually recorded a really funny and interesting short series on Radio 4 called Black Label, where he talks more about his childhood in the black country. And that also includes the gang that he mentioned in our chat. I really, really recommend you listen to that too. So thank you, Darren, for generously sharing your story and lessons with us. Thanks also to this week's anonymous listener and Tertiara. And of course, all of you guys for listening. I really, really appreciate you so much. And I hope I see you next time. Until then, happy turd glittering.